God, I uh, thank you that um, we can be here today again. Uh, we thank you that we get to engage in the word that you've given us and that uh, you would come among us. Lord, we're privileged to be part of that. Lord, we ask that you open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A young boy is running to make it on time to Sunday school. He's excited to be there because last week he learned how God made the world and everything in it, including the animals and the trees and even Adam. And then he took Eve, his wife, from his ribs. And he's fascinated and he wants to know what happens next. So he's sprinting along on this Sunday morning to get there in time. But he sprints so hard, by the time he arrives there, he has a terrible stitch up his side and he doubles over in the doorway in pain. And the Sunday school teacher is concerned, saying, goodness boy, what's wrong? He says, miss, I've got a horrible pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> that kind of excitement to engage with scripture is kind of admirable. And the scriptures we're given are amazing pieces of writing. Um, we owe them some appropriate care as we handle them, to engage them as they come to us. God's word deserves that we should take care when we are reading and applying it. When reading the creation account, we should make sure that we're looking back in humility and awe at the power and the primacy of our creator God. When we read the gospels, we should take care that we are marveling at the character of Jesus and at the saving work that he performs on the cross. And when we read an epistle of Paul, we should acknowledge the kind of church he is writing to, the lessons he is giving, the way he praises them, and the way that he condemns them for things. And sometimes his meaning is obscure, but we should investigate as faithfully as we can, apply the lasting principles we can derive from it, and be humble in the way that we read. But when you come to a chapter like 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I think the first thing you really can do is smile at God's habit of using mere humans to do divine work. There is a very human character to what's being written here. And I say this because I like finding structures and chiasms and repetitions and secret little patterns in the writing that, is, that you know, he would have known he was writing, but then I get to feel smart and say, well, actually, there's secret points that you haven't noticed yet. I kind of like that. But in this case, there's not really an awful lot of structure going on in chapter 16. This is Paul. He's clearly wrapping up what he's written in this last chapter. He's trying to touch on the things that he thinks he might have forgotten. He hasn't mentioned yet. It reads like it was written by kind of a rambling old guy because Paul was a bit of a rambly old guy. And God selected this rambly old guy to write the words that he would preserve for thousands of years from generation of believer to generation of believer. That is the personal, intimate nature of our God and of the way that he chooses to give his word to the people. And we take this for granted sometimes, but it's one of the things that really sets apart the God of the Bible from all the other contenders that are offered to the world. For example, if you jumped in your car and you drove down to Leroy Road in Algesta, you might encounter the Islamic Society of Algesta. who I understand they're presently building their $4 million mosque after some 20 years in the community there you would find that they study their holy book, the Koran. And they believe that the Koran was revealed from God, word for word, in a dictation style, by the angel Jibril to the prophet Muhammad, over many sessions over some 23 years. Every time the angel would come to Muhammad, and he'd write down word for word what was spoken, in Arabic, of course, 
And Muslims are expected to learn Arabic so that they can get closer to those words which God spoke. And to Muslims, to believers in Islam, God is so holy and so perfect that his word must be given directly from him, verbatim, with no variation. It has to be untainted by the interpretations and the translators. And everyone is obligated to strive to understand it, to find God where he spoke and meet him there. In a sense, God is so above mere people in Islam that mere people can have no part in communicating his word except writing it down for him. Anything more than that would be demeaning to God, they believe. By contrast, I don't know a Christian who thinks that the Bible descended from the clouds, leather-bound in a King James Version, perhaps, in its present state, or in a, in a leather-bound NIV study edition, perhaps a more contemporary example. It's a collection of writings that were written in multiple original languages over nearly 2,000 years. And frequently we produce new translations and we cheerfully translate it into as many languages as we possibly can to make it as accessible to everyone as we can. The Bible had at least 40 human authors, but we don't know the hard number because some of the books, it doesn't tell us who wrote them. Because it doesn't say, for example, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't know. Who wrote the book of Kings? We don't know, but the events in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Kings, take place over some 400 years, so I'm willing to bet that the last guy had some help from some earlier guys. We're comfortable in our tradition, and our traditional belief, that Moses personally wrote the first five books of the Bible, but we're not told that God dictated to him the creation account word for word, and he frantically chiseled it away into stone. It seems likely that this might be Moses' collation, his arrangement of the ideas of creation that the Jews already had that he was collating in an inspired way to preserve for history. And at least most of us are pretty sure that Moses didn't write the last bit of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, because it talks about Moses dying. And that would have been quite the challenge. And when we get to the Gospels, we literally have the same story, the life of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection told from four different perspectives. Why? Because... While the God of Islam is so perfect and apart from people that they can have no part in the production of his word, the God of the Bible is so loving and so intimately interested and involved in people's lives that he communicates almost exclusively through his people. Even when a vision of Christ came to John to give him what we now call the revelation, the Lord didn't say, write down these words. He said, write what you see. And poor John must have been there seeing these dragons and locust monsters and cosmic signs and thinking, I don't know how to describe half of this, but I'll give it a shot. And that's exactly what was required. God will communicate the gospel through four accounts with four different perspectives. Because it's not just the window into history that is important, it is the human perspective on the events that is important as well. Our God is very interested in humans. He's so close, he's so imminent that his spirit was in those who wrote the text and he didn't need to send an angel to dictate word for word to the man he used to write because he was in the man he used to write. And if you confess Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit is within you too, illuminating the words and convicting you on the content. That's the God that we believe in. So, 
When we come to something like 1 Corinthians 16, this rambly sort of style, this lack of structure, the whole sort of one more thing kind of tone that that chapter has, it reminds us of the kind of God that we have. He's the God who will take you on your worst day and use you often entirely uh, unaware of yourself to change someone else's life to bring them closer to him. He's a guy who will, he's a God who will take a guy like Paul and use not just his theological chops, but everything about him for his purposes. So, with that in mind, we will step through the passage, starting at verse 1 through verse 4 again. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. So the Gentile churches were collecting a special offering for the Jerusalem church. Why? Well, the answer to that is hinted all the way back in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, which look like this. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the, el um, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. That is, by Barnabas and Paul. There was a great famine going through the Roman world, and Judea particularly does not cope well with famine. It's fairly deserty. Jerusalem church was a little more impoverished and more persecuted at the time, and Corinth was not a poor town. Remember, in the last chapters we've looked at, the church has been accused of, among other things, turning the Lord's Supper into a kind of open bar smorgasbord event. So they definitely had the food budget to spare. And Paul gets on with drumming up the fundraising, and this is important for a couple of reasons. Now, on a straightforward level, a given church is encouraged to think of itself as a body working together and with a particular obligation to act towards the good of other churches, of other believers. A particular faith community has its own sense of belonging, but there's a broader sense in which one church is sister to another, and they should share the blessing of God where they have the opportunity. Now, secondly, and maybe on a more cynical level, we knew that Paul had a bit of a falling out with the Church of Jerusalem back in Acts, and having him spearheading the famine relief effort couldn't have gone bad, well, couldn't have made things worse, at least, as far as the reconciliation goes. This doesn't mean he was acting entirely tactically here, like he was thinking, I'll use this Gentile money to get back in good with the Jerusalem, Jerusalem church, and then I'll show them. But I think it is fair to say that he might have had a special passion for this project, to bring him back closer to the people whom he came from. And finally, the nature of that conflict that Paul had with the Jerusalem church, um, wherever it tends to come up, is, is between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had historically seen themselves as the chosen people of God, because they were. They had a commission from God that all nations would be blessed through them. And this idea now 
that the blessing was Jesus and all nations were being blessed through Jesus and no longer through the Jews, having them not as an exclusive chosen people anymore, but united to the Gentiles through Christ, that's a lot, of, a lot for a, a tradition-based faith that had endured for thousands of years to adapt to right away. That's a big step for them to take. So their response was to cling to their older ways. They tried to impose the Jewish law on the Gentiles who were around them. That included the ritual washings, the festivals, and particularly, a sticking point, the idea of circumcision. This caused tension. They wanted Gentile converts to be circumcised before they joined the Jerusalem church community, which must have made for a very awkward job for the welcoming committee at that church. Welcome to Jerusalem Baptist Church. I hope you'll be worshipping here at JBC with us next week. Is it Kevin Bev? Wonderful, Bev. If you want to come over here and sign our visitor's book. Kev, if you just want to take your belt off and bite down on that. (laughs) So it created tensions. Eventually... But eventually, Paul won that argument as much as he could win something like that. And the Jerusalem church broadly conceded the point. But there was a lingering resentment between the Jews and the Gentiles, not just in the Jerusalem church, but all throughout the, uh, the Roman Empire. Everywhere the church sprang up, everywhere there were Jews and Gentiles to have conflict. This parity before God that they had all of a sudden was hard for them to deal with. And this is Paul engineering not just a reactive display of kindness, not just responding to their famine, but also being, a, being proactive in his attempt to mend that rift, to change the climate of the ancient church into one focused on commonalities rather than differences. So let's move on from there. The next section is the rambly one that I described earlier. Let me read it again, verses 5 through 18 here. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now only to make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door is open for effective work, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go along with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Those men deserve recognition. We kind of start with Paul's itinerary and how open that is. I'll come by after I go through Macedonia. Did I mention that? I'm going through Macedonia. I'll hang out with you guys for a while, not just a passing visit. I want to log some quality time, but I'm really flat out here in Ephesus. Sort of verbally steps down from his theological perch for a while. 
just to communicate with a church full of people that he loves and cares about. And then to commend Timothy and Apollos to them, to encourage them to embrace these visitors from Achaia, Achaia, province of Greece, west of Corinth. And he stops in there at uh, verses 13 and 14 to reiterate his message from chapter 13. He says, be on guard, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, and do all these things in love. And finally, having encouraged and reprimanded and corrected for 16 chapters, Paul takes the parchment from the younger fellow with the steady hands who's been writing down this dictation for him and adds his own final salutation in his larger, shakier letters, verses 19 through 24. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, verse 22, obviously, is the odd man out in that sequence. And if you read it without giving it some nuance, it does sound like Paul suddenly gets crazy angry halfway through his outro. It's all the brothers and sisters here to send, here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. And if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. But Paul is actually maintaining the same tone throughout. This is a statement to a church that has been so badly maligned by bad teaching and the influence of those whom God had not appointed that they're only just shambling along and Paul really is afraid that they may have collapsed as a church. Recall the last several weeks and the challenges and the strange problems and difficulties they've been going through. Paul loves these guys, but he's aware of how vulnerable they are and how spiritually naive they are. And so he pleads with them one final time, if anyone does not love their Lord, let that person be cursed. Put them out. Don't entertain them in your leadership, in your community, because you're a community centered on the love of Christ. And without that love, you are lost. And so he signs off, hoping they will take all his words to heart. So do they? Well, we'll look at the second letter to the Corinthians in the not-so-distant future, and we'll see. But what is there for us in this chapter? What's there for SDBC in the year 2016 in this 2,000-year-old piece of writing, this sign-off from the great letter to the Corinthians? Because aside from these little snippets here and there, references to what he's already said, an applicable lesson is not immediately easily forthcoming. But there's a couple of things that we can draw from this last chapter. And the first is this very human presentation of Paul that I mentioned earlier. It's easy for biblical figures to seem larger than life, to seem distant and inhuman and unbelievable. You know, we can read about Samson and we can't comprehend what it would be like for someone to be such a physical juggernaut outside of superhero stories which Samson inspired. We read about Esther and we see a tale of royal romance and intrigue, the likes of which we expect to see on a Shakespearean stage. We can read about Adam and Eve, not born but made in an unfallen garden in the direct presence of God. And that's just too far from our experience to strongly relate to. But you read about Paul, 
an old man wringing his hands over the state of his church, longing to be with his friends but not sure if he'll make it this year, saying hi from their mutual friends in Asia, waffling a bit about the trip he intends to take before signing off in his own sketchy handwriting. That's a person. I know people like that. This is a book about actual people doing actual things for the glory of the actual God. And sometimes it's good to have that made clear in passages like this. And the other thing is an extension of this theme that we've seen throughout the whole letter, the the living out of Christ's command to love one another. The first loyalty of the brothers and sisters in the church of Corinth should be to the brothers and sisters to the church of Corinth. But the love that they are called to have central in their heart and the spirit that they share, those extend to other churches as well. There's an interrelationship between churches here. We see Timothy and Apollos traveling about with Paul, assisting where they can, not belonging to any particular church. The leaders from Achaia coming across to help Corinth. Corinth receiving affection and blessing from Asia. Galatia, Corinth, Rome, and Ephesus all kicking in together to financially bless Jerusalem in a hard time. There's this whole connectivity there, a connection in the kingdom. Now, the local church is a natural unit, a body of believers, and that body acting in concert. It has the power to devote its care and effort to the unsaved people around it and to its sister churches in need. And it's a beautiful thing to be part of something like that. But for us, we have another level of connection, yet again, that complicates things. We have our local church, and then we have the churches that we may know and be affiliated with above that, with neighborhood ties or church plants or denomination. And then we have the global church in the sense of the work of God happening all around the world. The gospel of our crucified Lord going out to all the ends of the earth, making churches we've never heard of that we will go to our graves never hearing of but assured are there. And that's a two-edged sword. On one hand, it's reassuring to know that the gospel has such a powerful vehicle and is advancing all through the world. The Corinthians, they lived in a day when they had a, a fairly justified, sensible fear that they might be persecuted out of existence. The victory of the church in the world was not a foregone conclusion aside from the faith they had. But today, even if we're cynical about the church in the West... Followers of Christ are popping up like God's own weeds in the pavement cracks of gospel-hostile China and Africa and even now in the Middle East. And the church, broadly speaking, is marching on. But on the other hand, again, because the global church is so big, because it is so big and everything we do individually must seem so small. If there's a fundraiser to help a persecuted church in some corner of the world now, some $10 million may be raised for it, and would they really miss the 15 bucks I would have put in? Probably not. Where's it going anyway? I don't know the churches on that side of the world. They don't know me. It's one thing to give a missionary or a, a sister church money, or our effort or our time. It's another thing entirely just to throw that money or effort into the void and, and never know what's going to happen to it, or if he made any impact. That's not something the Corinthians were wrestling with. It's hard, I would even go so far as to say impossible, to care and therefore love about things we do not know. 
And that's probably just as well, because if we empathize with all the suffering going on in the global church, we would never sleep again. Now, God may convict us individually on certain issues, and we should follow that conviction. When God picks an enthusiastic teenager and rounds up their friends and they do the 40-hour famine, that's excellent and worthy of support. Praise God. But in the meantime, when we're not doing special projects, God gives us love as our guide in all things. And naturally, we love best those things that are close to us and those people that are close to us. We have a local community that needs to know the gospel. We have local sister churches whom we should assist and care for, and we expect one day we may rely on their care too. We have the privilege of working out the gospel, and we don't stand alone in that. And because Jesus loved us enough to die for us and to restore us to God and to the promise of eternal life, we, the body of his people, in this place, we have the freedom, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the heavenly ambition to walk in that way with one another, with our brothers and sisters around the world, and especially with those just around the corner. So endeth the lesson on Corinthians the first. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the guidance made available in it because of your spirit, both in the hands that wrote the words and behind our eyes which read them. Help us to apply your word to our lives. Father, we recognize your desire to draw us together as one body and your desire for the churches to be in harmony as they take your gospel to the world. We ask that you guide and convict each of us on how best to honor you in our lives at all levels. We commit our hearts to you again. And the one who made us, the one who made us new, Lord, that's you and we praise you. And we ask you to impress your teaching upon our hearts that you made once again. Show us if we ever use our freedom that comes from your gospel to impede your gospel, Lord, so we may correct ourselves. Show us how best to love one another. Show us how to present your people best to the world around us, to use your gifts in a way that promotes your son, and to take your word, not to dismay or discourage the world, but to draw and invite people to know you. And may we always remember that we are saved and blessed and changed, not by our own struggle to reach you, but by your boundless kindness and endless love which reached down to us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.